Hi, I'm Paul Mundell. I'm from Companion Labs. And Paul, can you tell us a little bit about Companion Labs before we get into the topic today? Sure. Um, Companion Labs is a startup uh, based in San Francisco. And what we're doing is we're working on um, sort of machine learning enabled hardware that will, um, using computer vision, read a dog's posture and behavior and activity, and through positive reinforcement mechanism, um, provide reinforcers for the dog doing um, the behaviors that, that we would like it to do. And so this device will uh, use computer vision and positive reinforcement to train a whole suite of behaviors in a, in a dog with, without a human present, which uh, sometimes, unfortunately, humans can't be present. So the, the automated uh, dog trainer. Exactly. Fascinating. As an alternative option to the $75,000 Boston Robotics robo dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where you get to keep your dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you can't get a $75,000 robot dog and you're left with a real dog, um, they, they need help uh, being trained for sure. Um, well, great. Well, that'll be a great segue into discussing a topic today, which is mental health in dogs, starting with discussing our love of dogs. So, Paul, wh- when did your love of dogs begin and uh i assume like most in childhood uh it it did although i didn't actually have a dog as a as a child it wasn't until i was uh in in grad school uh ironically that i that i got a dog um always wanted one wasn't wasn't allowed to have one which which probably (laughs) drove my interest even even more strongly um but um I was actually in grad school over in Germany uh, and uh, studying nothing related to dogs. I was studying philosophy and um, got a, a German shepherd puppy and started training it. It, it um, you know, dog training clubs that were in Heidelberg, the town I was studying in, uh, and, and just became fascinated by um, dog behavior, dog learning, um, and, and they, you know, what, what we could kind of do in partnership with dogs. In other words, the, the communication back and forth between dog and, and person. Sweet. Yeah. I really, I don't, I think it's hard. It's going to be hard to come by a more perfect life form than a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, uh, they're just, yeah. I mean, Anna, Anna knows my love for my dog runs deep. Um, and, uh, yeah, my, I've, I've had personally dogs, um, all my life, um, started doing some volunteer rescue work as early as eight or nine. Uh, and then I, uh, one of my jobs, many jobs in sort of high school, I was trying to save up money to get a car. Uh, I was washing dishes and then I was also grooming, um, dogs on the side. So I was washing dishes and washing dogs. And, uh, yeah, it's just, they, they've played a huge role in my life. My dog now plays a massive role in my life. And there's just something about the bond and the connection that it's really hard to explain to a, um, someone who doesn't have a dog and hasn't been through that. Or I find even if someone hasn't had a dog sort of as a lone adult, like it's one thing if there's just dogs in the house when you're a kid, it's another thing when you're the primary provider for that dog. Um, but, uh, there's, yeah, there's just something so, uh, so special and so unique about that bond. That yeah. Yeah. Part it's of a, words. yeah. It's a, it's a unique relationship we share. I mean, it, it's, you know, similar, but, but different than, than, you know, our relation with it, with any other person, whether it's a friend or spouse or mm-hmm. your children or parents. Um, but, uh, but it's, uh, uh, it truly is amazing. It, and I think Anna, Anna, at some point soon, you and Manny are going to get a dog, right? Is the, that's the thinking. Yeah, definitely. Like I've been actively looking to adopt a dog. So I'm interested to learn more about this. Yeah. It's, uh, they're just, yeah, they're just, just incredible, uh, little, uh, perfect little souls. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, the, the amount of the just uh, joy I get from uh, waking up and seeing all there every day, and you know, breaking up parts of my day with uh, with with interacting with her. Yeah, it's they're uh, they're awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think anybody who's had a dog, I, and, and James, as you say, really more significantly, if it's if it's been your dog as an adult versus sort of the household dog as a as a family as a child, um, I think anyone who's had a dog understands just how it is that dogs were domesticated because they are just so incredibly effective at worming their way into our lives and affections and and you know establishing real relationships. That uh, you know, I think it it, uh, it 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 makes it perfectly obvious <laughs> why why we chose them and they chose us. I mean, it's a, on their part a very successful strategy and and uh, a, a, you know a, a winning strategy, uh, hopefully from both sides. Yeah, for sure, the surest fire way to get a, I would say, irrational emotional reaction from me is to uh, do something to Nala. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. I, you have this like instinct, uh, like you have with your children of just yep, exactly. protectionism, um, even to the irrational standpoint where they can't do anything wrong. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a crazy relationship. I, for years I have been, I've been avoiding, I stopped using the word pet and and that was through my experience with Nala and people would ask me why, because, you know, dogs are pets, cats are pets. And I told, I would tell, tell people that I don't see our relationship as sort of master and, and servant, um, as sort of pet and, uh, and King. Um, yes, you know, I, I have some degree of control over her life, of course. Um, and that's also for obviously for her safety. I just let her roam around the streets of Los Angeles, which is how I found her in the first place. She wouldn't be very safe, but to me, it's much more of a mutual respect and, uh, and recognizing her independence and her, her need for independence as well and personality. And, um, just sort of see us, I use the word companions as a result is I just say, yeah, she's my, my dog companion. Um, because yeah, I don't, I don't really see it as a, as a pet, uh, relationship. And that, that word has, has stood out to me as something bothersome for a while. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's interesting how in, in sort of over my professional life, which is now more than 20 years, um, how, how our vocabulary has evolved. Um, you know, if you think of it, pet was you know, obviously, and in, in many places still is the sort of standard way to, to refer to the, you know, the dog in your life. Um, and if you think about it, it, it's the, you know, the pronoun you use classically, you used it, right? The, you know, it went here, it went there, it barked. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's becoming in most circles, probably less and less common uh, other than in sort of scientific writing. And, and it's, you know, he did this or she did that. Um, and, and yeah, we're, we're now thinking of them as, as, you know, in, in almost all senses as family members, um, and, and sort of referring to them in, in that way. You know, there are partners, companions. Yeah, totally. I'm curious, Anna, how would, uh, since, you know, you, you've spent a lot of time with Nala and I, how would you, if someone had to ask you how you describe my relationship with Nala, what would your response be? Definitely of like, um, yeah, like a daughter, really, like very close. Like you said, your day, you kind of build your day around hanging out with her, like spending time with her. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah. And Anna, Anna's, uh, spent quite a bit of time with Nala as well over the years and has been a huge help, uh, with Nala too. So I, Nala and Anna also have their own, their own separate and special relationship. How old is Nala? Nala is, we believe around 12 now. It's, uh, founder 11 years ago. Um, she wasn't 
like small pup, but she clearly was young. Could be twelve, mm-hmm. could be thirteen. Hard to hard to say because don't really uh, know her age when I when, when I got her. But um, you wouldn't know her by you wouldn't know her age by by seeing her <laughs> her interacting with her. She's like a a permanent three or four year old in terms of both health and energy. Um, but uh, but yeah, she's she's a, she's definitely a senior dog now. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So transitioning. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. I, I was going to say it's a, you know the the you know the, this unfortunate piece of of being together with a dog is that our our lifespans are are so uh, <laughs> vastly different um, mm-hmm. that uh, it it uh, you know is really the the worst experience or most painful experience of having a dog is is that you know after you know. 10 years, 15 years when they, when they die, um, it's just, uh, it's just horrible. Yeah. It's, it's gut wrenching. It's, and yeah, it's, it's not an easy, no life is easy to replace. No role in your life is easy to replace, but, um, I think people don't sometimes don't understand that. Oh, you just get another dog. Um, but this is not like an accessory, you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, my computer got busted and now I need mm-hmm. a new computer. Um, it, you know, it is the equivalent of someone losing a sibling and just saying, well, couldn't you get another sibling? I mean, obviously that wouldn't right. be a rational response at all. Um, we use for people, we, we understand that with people, but sometimes I think people don't quite get that bond and the, and that the special uniqueness of the individual bond with an individual dog, especially over a long period of time, uh, we'll just kind of think, well, you just get another dog. You'll be okay. And it's just, no, it's like, you know, get another dog eventually when you're ready. But, um, each, each dog experience you have is like irreplaceable by on its own. Yeah. 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 It's, it, I, I encountered that from for many years. I worked for Canine Companions for Independence, a, a nonprofit that breeds and then trains and then ultimately places uh, assistance dogs with people who are disabled. And and that was just a that transition was was extremely difficult for people because it, it when you have a service dog, you work so closely. I mean, you literally spend your lives together. And, and then losing a service dog was was incredibly wrenching um, on two on two different fronts for uh, for our clients. It was uh, not only did they lose this this companion that was really literally with them every minute of the day, but they also lost the services of the dog. And so things that they took for granted because the dog would enable them to to be able to do that, um, they could now no longer do. And so. It, they, they were in this very difficult position or are in this very difficult position when it occurs of grieving for the dog that just died, but needing another dog pretty quickly. Um, or they need to adapt their life quite considerably to accommodate the now absence of this dog that could do so much. Um, and it's, it's something that, that each person with a service dog sort of has to navigate on their own, but it's, it's not a simple transition. Not at all. Well, uh, I don't want to get too hung up on the losing dog story because that'll be a, a rabbit hole in depression for the majority of this podcast. Um, let's talk about uh, the mental health in dogs. And so it's, you know, to be clear, uh, you know, we're talking about the mental health needs of a dog, not dogs help with our mental health, as I sort of pointed out in our, our discuss our outline ahead of time, you know, I actually searched when I was searching for mental health needs of, for my dog, 80% of the search results are about dogs helping humans with their mental health, which is sort of points to the fact that, you know, this sort of understanding and the value we put towards the mental health need, mental needs of a dog, not just the physical needs is still pretty nascent in, in sort of, uh, uh, consumer practice. And even oh, peer reviewed study, um, mm-hmm. we still see dogs primarily as a working animal to fulfill our needs. Uh, and not that that doesn't exist. And I'm not necessarily advocating that, um, you know, we, we turn the towns and cities over 
to the canines, although there's some days that thing feels, it feels like it might have a better outcome. Um, but, uh, I just, you know, acknowledging that there are mental health needs in dogs seems to be, uh, it's sort of very, very sort of fringe and knit and niche even amongst dog, uh, dog owners. Yeah. Yes. It, it, when, again, when, when I started my career, which is in the early nineties, um, you know, one of the one of the first things you encounter when you're working with with you know service dogs is the need to you know sort of screen dogs that would you know not only be able to do the work but would are well adapted to it in the sense that they enjoy the work. And mm-hmm. I, my my initial research was well, okay, so what sort of behavioral work has been done on dogs, both healthy dogs and screening as well as as disorders and in, in especially in terms of prevention or 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 treatment if if prevention doesn't work uh and and i was i was pretty amazed at just the complete lack of um at the time research and it's really only been in the past um one one and a half decades that you've seen veterinary behavior um and and a focus on um dog behavior, both normal and the mental health issues that dogs have, uh, start to emerge as, a, as sort of a, a real discipline. And I think that's largely driven by our changing relationship with dogs. I think that's something that, that we've, we've driven versus uh, sort of academia kind of driving itself. Um, mm-hmm. So really, it, it, it's when you look at studies on separation anxiety or uh, other anxieties or phobias or, or behavioral disorders, you'll notice that, that the research is all really, you know, since the, since the 2000s, essentially. Uh, before that, there was very little. Yeah, and it's, it's worth pointing out, too, that I think even with <clears throat> mental health um, for people, there's still a large number of people that sort of when they hear mental health, they think of that sort of more, you know, Freudian experience of you laying down on a couch and telling someone about your problems and, uh, kind of only define mental health that way. Uh, and of course then imagining that like, okay, you you want dogs to lay on couches and bark their problems. Like, no, it's not what we're talking about. We've of course have come to a much more sophisticated viewpoint on the human, the mental health of humans, or a lot of us have, that understands that it's all encompassing and it incorporates, you know, which the food you eat incorporates your quality of sleep and incorporates the sort of the, the relationships you have in your life um, and the quality of them. It incorporates, you know, um, are you living a life of purpose and do you find purpose in your work and what you do? All these things um, sort of uh, lead into our collective mental health as people. Um, and, you know, so I think it's just worth flagging. We say a dog mental health. We're not we're not talking about you know therapy, um, talk therapy for dogs. Um, we're talking about just acknowledging that dogs, you know, f- through a variety of variables, have mental health can have mental health issues and thus have mental health needs um, in similar ways to. To what people have, if you if you if you're going by the right sort of perspective and definition of mental health. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It, it's you know, we, I think the transition you're describing is the recognition that that there's there's much more you know physiologic happening with the whole organism, and whether that organism is a human or a canine, uh, and you know, mental health isn't a, a temporary mood. It's not. Um, you know, as you, as you said, kind of this Freudian dialogue, um, but it's this, you know, whole, you know, multi-systemic um, uh, occasion of, you know, are you are you healthy? Are you content? Uh, are you, you know, is your mood over over time uh, a happy one, or are there things that that make it make it more difficult? One of the difficulties, though, about even recognizing mental health issues in in dogs or in other animals versus humans is obviously we can report verbally on how we're feeling, and and make that make that problem known to others. And 
If we're curious about it, we can ask people about how they're feeling or what's happening. And so we get this sort of direct feedback, maybe misleading, but but it's it's direct feedback. Animals and, and dogs specifically obviously can't do that. And so even recognizing sort of the mental states or behavioral states of, of dogs is something that, that, you know, for a long time wasn't wasn't obvious to people and and we needed to look at its sort of behavioral measures or behavioral indices of how is this dog feeling how's he doing is 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 there something wrong can we unpack that a little more paul just just because you brought it up we were going to get to it later but um now that we're here uh for for the people that do have dogs and want to better understand what are those nonverbal cues and communications that they should be picking up on and looking at that could indicate, you know, levels of anxiety, stress, depression, um, even PTSD, all these things can exist within, uh, uh, for a dog. What are those signals that you advise people look at, um, and start to sort of monitor? Sure. Um, it's, it's, you know, fearfulness is, is typically, and, and, you know, I don't, don't know how far we want to get into the semantics of anxiety versus fear versus phobic or phobias. Um, but, uh, but, you know, typically uh, you, you notice with, with any problem, they're, they're both physiologic changes, some of which might not be so obvious, but also behavioral changes that, that certainly should be apparent to, um, any dog owner. Um, you know, with with anxiety and fear reactions, notice if it's severe, dogs will start to salivate uh, excessively. They'll tremble uh, or freeze. Um, if if a dog is fearful about a specific situation, um, if you know, for example, in the case of of dogs that are noise phobic during, say, a thunderstorm or or Fourth of July fireworks. Um, the dog may try to escape the environment. They may try to dig or seek out a safe place. Very often dogs will, you know, go in the bathroom, get in the bathtub because that's the most sort of enclosed spot if they, if they don't have sort of a crate that they're used to using. Um, so any change in activity level, um, you know, if a dog is, it, dogs do, um, suffer, uh, depression and, you know, a, a sort of classic sign of a dog that's, that's not doing well in terms of depression is loss of appetite, you know, inappetence over, you know, not just a day, but over a period of time is, is pretty significant. It, it can also, as many of these signs can also indicate sort of a physical problem with the dog, some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, problem with, with its uh, stomach digestive tract or something else. But but if those are ruled out, um, you know, that can be, for example, a, a, a pretty clear sign that, that something's wrong, especially if it's, um, you know, accompanied by a reduced activity le- level, if it leads to weight loss. Um, and, and if the owner, you know, is noticing this and seeing, um, you know, in your, in your canine companion that, you know, is there, did somebody significant, whether it's, whether it's another dog or, or cat or a person in the family, did they, you know, has, have they either left or, or passed away? Um, dogs do actually grieve. Um, have there been any environmental changes? Did you move to a new location? Um, is there something that's triggering a fear response? Uh, or, or has something in your relationship changed? In other words, are you now, and this will, we'll see this unfortunately as, as our social distancing uh, guidelines uh, start to relax and life goes back to normal, um, we'll, we'll probably see a surge of separation anxiety because dogs have now become habitually acclimated to having us around all the time. Um, and that separation is, is, is difficult. Dogs are social animals. Um, but it doesn't have to be, um, there, there are certainly many cases in the literature of owners not leaving, but owners themselves getting depressed and that, that depression changing the owner's sort of, you know, not only state of mind, but activity level. And that causes, uh, a, an accompanying depression in the, in the dog. Is there any, any scientific evidence of, you know, dogs, sort of mirroring or feeding off your emotional state. I mean, it's talked about a lot 
I certainly see that with my dog, but I also, you know, I could be, I could easily be sort of planting it in my head and, um, seeing what I, what I, what my mind has told me I'm already going to see, so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. do we, is there any actual like peer reviewed literature or science that has shown, um, dogs, you know, do in real time kind of carry our uh, emotional state with them? Not that, not that I'm familiar with. Um, it, it's, there's a ton of anecdotal uh, evidence and evidence in the literature. And you'll, as you go through literature, looking at it, either depression or certain, you know, anxiety uh, disorders in the dog, you'll see that referenced. But I haven't seen any any actual like study that that, that gets at that sort of question. Uh, uh, although I, I would expect with the with the new sort of cognitive focus on on uh, you know increasing interest in in the dog as as uh, a research subject among cognitive psychologists and sort of ev- evolutionary anthropologists they they'll start designing experiments that get at that I mean you know an interesting um, experiment that does not get at the question you asked but just shows how in tune with us uh, dogs are, um, did an interesting um, series of experiments with a a professor at Duke University named Brian Hare a number of years ago. Um, And we were looking at dogs, uh, Brian and the students were the ones who designed this, but we were looking at dogs that uh, uh, were either going to be used in a, a working role, sort of detecting explosives or bombs or whatever, and um, service dogs, the canine companions, uh, was was training to work with people with disabilities. And the nature of this this task that each dog was assigned was, um, you know, a, a container sort of a, similar to like a Tupperware container, for example, uh, took the dog's toy or food, whatever the dog was more excited about, put it inside the container, the dog sniffed the container, knocked the lid off, ate the food or played with the toy repeated that a number of times and then locked the lid on the container so that so that sniffing it pawing it wouldn't it, it, it became an insoluble task they couldn't get at it and what was interesting was the the original point of this was to was to measure how long a dog would persist in this activity um, and it, super interesting distinction between some of the working dogs uh, that were being trained to work sort of independently on detection and the service dogs, which are much more similar in many ways to, to the, you know, companions we all share our homes with, is that the dogs that had been selected to do the detection work fairly independently, they persisted for quite a while. Um, and by quite a while, I mean, you know, whatever the maximum time, one to two minutes of, of time was that they were measuring this but the but the service dogs uh spent almost zero time once they couldn't immediately get it opened but what they did do is they turned to the uh, human in the room and looked at them nudged them barked at them looked at the uh object looked back at the human i mean it was it was amazing that that just how tightly dogs these dogs expected us to cooperate with them and again, it, it, I, I think in, in this respect, the service dogs that we were using, canine companions, are much more similar to sort of the, the you know, the, what people picture as your pet dog companion. Um, and they are clearly, they view us as, a, as, you know, cooperative partners, which I think is, is you know, both from their perspective and from our perspective is is. Per- perfectly um, appropriate and, and uh, they're, you know, accurate. But but the flip side of that close connection is getting back to what James brought up is that they are very sensitive to our our moods, our state of mind, what we happen to be doing, um, and and that's you know that ca- that can cause them problems in terms of. As, as we're talk, talking about depression, um, if something happens to us, but m- much more frequently, it, it, it's actually one of the more frequent uh, problems that, that dogs suffer from is separation anxiety. Um, 
and that's uh, you know it's estimated that probably 15 to 20 percent of of all dogs suffers some mild to severe degree of of separation anxiety. And as you said, like with returning back to as people go back to you know work and such we will kind of anticipate more of these separation anxiety cases. Like, is there something that you can suggest like people doing to help ease that, that sort of process for the dog? Uh, yes, actually. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it's, I would, I would recommend actually that, that, that people, if they've, especially if they've been, you know, essentially home 24 seven, together with the dog and when they've gone out it's been to you know walk with the dog and and go to the park or or whatever that they um if if they're going to be leaving the dog alone when they return to work or school that they actually sort of practice that get the dog habituated to being alone again and do it in a sort of very gradual way in other words don't go out for three hours but you know, go out um, and if they notice any signs of distress and or, or have reason to believe that, that this could be a problem, start off extremely gradually. Just go out for a few minutes, come back. Um, and it's important both prior to going out and upon returning that, that they are pretty sort of matter of fact with the dog about, hey, nothing special is happening. I'm going out, I'm coming back. Um, Unfortunately, if you if you try to either you know make a, a big celebratory uh, deal out of out of returning, or you try to sort of preemptively console the dog before departure, you're you're sort of feeding into the and reinforcing the the emotional anxious response that you're trying to work against. So you, you don't want to do that. But yeah, it I would you know over the course of the next couple of weeks it that's how long it's going to be before we, we start to return or, or longer, perhaps. Um, just get the dog used to being being alone for, for it can be very brief periods of time, even 15 minutes. Um, and, and sort of allow the dog to know that, you know, life, life can be okay without, without me present. And this, you know, is also normal. It's not, you know, this, situation that we're currently in is not going to stay forever. It, it remains normal for us to be apart for a little while. Um, right. Paul, I'm going to ask you to play a little dog therapist for, 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 for Nala for a second. Um, and just wondering what your thoughts are on, on this, uh, this issue that uh, seems to always trigger anxiety and stress in her. So my dog Nala does not, um, she doesn't get a lot of separation anxiety anymore. She's generally pretty chill um, when at home alone uh, and uh, seems to enjoy. She's kind of an independent spirit, seems to enjoy her space. Even when I'm home with her, she typically want to be in the same room, although not always. Like she's not in the same room right now because uh, she's resting. But she doesn't doesn't have that need for constant like attention. However, whenever anybody – is over my house uh, to talk to me. It could be anywhere from like a friend to a family member to a business meeting. Um, she, uh, she, I mean, she gets very, very anxious and stressed. And you can, t- I can tell that on her, not just because, well, because she's one panting and that's a sign also often of, of stress that a dog is experiencing um, and pacing. And kind of, kind of nudging me and nudging me, and it starts the second someone's over, and it kind of doesn't stop. Uh, this sort of, you know, looks like coming out of jealousy or hard to, you know, uh, you know, hard for me to understand exactly what it is. Um, but then as soon as that person leaves, like total relaxation again, and um, you know, not not needing my attention, going back to like her separate ways. But second someone comes in, they're here for like an hour. Um, she's trying to get my attention constantly what what would you you know what kind of anxiety uh you know canine anxiety from what your your knowledge would you associate that with um it could be it could be a couple of things um it's a obviously it's a it's a social anxiety um and it 
you know, you wonder, and of course, it, it's one of the, you know, great difficulties about, about, you know, trying to help uh, uh, or understand what a, a dog that you've rescued might be suffering from is that, you know, parts of their biography are very often <laughs> completely unknown. Um, but, uh, you know, one sort of common um, cause of, of that sort of social anxiety is if the initial um, socialization period, in other words, when Nala was, was, a, was a young puppy to, uh, you know, young to mid-juvenile dog, so the, the first, you know, six to nine or 12 months of life, if she wasn't uh, actively socialized, if she was somewhat isolated from, from sort of normal interactions with people and viewed them mainly at a distance, um, that, will, that will certainly sort of predispose uh, a dog to this sort of social anxiety that you're describing. Um, you know, and I don't know if that's accurate or not accurate. You may, you may know that. Um, but, uh, it, it, uh, you know, sort of uncertainty about strangers, you know, she's, she's now 12 years old. Um, you know, she's had plenty of experiences with you where, you know, the stranger has never been threatening, right? People come over to your house and, and nothing bad has ever happened to her. Um, but it's a, it's sort of a, a deep-seated, in some sense, probably self-reinforcing behavior where, you know, she seeks out you to, to be comforted. Um, you, you provide the comfort uh, and she just kind of gets through it. But, but one, of the, one of the difficulties with so many um, sort of behavioral problems or mental health issues with dogs is that their, their origins are very often in sort of that juvenile period. And you know, one, once they've become established, um, they are extremely difficult to, to treat. Um, now, from the sounds of it, in the, in the big picture, Nala's problem sounds fairly mild. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like it really disrupts her, disrupts her life. Um, but, you know, when it's more severe, it's, it's, that's when you think about actually, you know, more therapeutic approach, you know, involving involving perhaps some some drugs and 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 of carefully scripted sort of behavioral therapy to actually teach the dog that that strangers are um, you know just essentially friends she hasn't met yet and and you know you have people feed her and and pet her and hang out until she stops salivating and and shows signs of calmness, but. But in the case of, of what sounds like a you know fairly mild case of, of social anxiety or fear of strangers, it, it's unnecessary. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I mean, I, she probably does have a fear of strangers and social anxiety because she was pretty badly abused when found. Um, and even the first few months I had it with her, there was, it took a while to build up that trust. So there very much could be just a general fear of strangers and anxiety. She seems, I mean, Anna can testify some of this too. She seems a little more comfortable around, uh, women than men or new women than new men. Um, which I think is sometimes common in, in, in dogs as well, but it's it more of, it's, it's less about the immediate reaction and more about sort of once that person's been here. She actually doesn't do this right away. It's once that person's been here for like a half hour. That's when that like that sort of panting and and stress and the need for my attention starts to really kick in. But yeah, interesting. Right. Yeah, it can it can you know so many problems tend to be uh, comorbid is the term. In other words, they they occur together, and there could be an element of you know what's what's typically referred to as hyperattachment. In other words, a, a, a dog that, that really is attached to you and, and you are sort of its, its principal focus, but principal focus beyond sort of the bounds of normalcy. In other words, when you go to a room, she would follow you and show signs of distress if you were, if you were separated. Um, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't sound like now has that to any great extent, but um, you know it could very well be that that 
you know, you represent um, and have always since you rescued her represent sort of this, this safe haven, the safe person. Um, and it, it, you know, she, she hasn't established that with other, you know, with, with strangers, with other people. Um, and so it, it, you know, she's learned to tolerate it for short periods, but you start to see the, the symptoms come out as the, as the duration increases. Well, I would, I would not say Nal and I are hyper attached. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we probably are. Um, uh, one thing I want to touch on, Paul, before we wrap up is just, you know, what are some of the common things that people can do um, uh, to ensure their dog's mental health? Uh, and there's two two parts of this question I have. One is just, you know, do, do you agree with the statement that, you know, not all dogs are created equal. And what I mean by that is people have suffer from, you know, uh, different forms of anxiety, but the way they cope with them can be different. Some people exercise helps a lot. Some people talking out loud helps a lot. Some people just alone time and processing helps a lot. Some people it's a creative outlet, whether it's painting or music, um, or writing, it helps a lot, right? It's, it's just no one size fit all fits all. And I, I have found that with the different dogs I've worked with, um, and spend time with over the years that it's pretty similar to, um, that, you know, some dogs, you know, it's outdoor activity and exercise that really, uh, make a difference. Some dogs, they want to socialize with other dogs. Some dogs it's, you know, wanting, you know, quiet and just, um, some, you know, a safe place to rest some dogs, you know, so it's, it, would you, A, do you agree that it is different per dog? Um, and then B, are there some just general rules of thumb, like we know with with people that, you know, you would advise people try to put into their routine with their dogs, whether that's it's good to sort of um, you know stimulate them with with play and with types of play and uh, learning new commands and stimulating the mind that way. I've I've read a lot about the value of smells to dogs and having access to a variety of smells each day um, as a critical form of stimulation versus the same smells day in and day out. So, yeah. So the mm-hmm. first part is, you know, do you agree with that, that assessment on the parallel between dogs and human and the sort of individual needs? And then the second part is, you know, what are some of the just basic things that um, dog owners can adopt to, to, to aid in their dog's mental health? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I certainly do agree with, with the first statement that you made that the dogs are just like people. Dogs are individual, uh, both in the reaction to potentially problematic environments or, or situations where some dogs will become fearful, other dogs will not, but also the things that dogs enjoy. It's, as you said, I mean, some dogs love sort of, you know, food-based puzzles where they have to work to get, you know, the kibble or cheese bits or, or whatever food out of the, out of the puzzle. Other dogs get bored by them, but like physical activity. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, part of, part of your responsibility as the, as the partner to your dog is to, is to think about and experiment a little bit and find out what, what it is that, that really um, both your dog really enjoys and, and, and oftentimes these are the same, uh, finds rewarding and, and stress relieving. Um, and that can be, that can be vigorous exercise. It can be a, a long walk. Um, it can be solving a puzzle, engaging in training. Training is a great exercise in, in many ways. I'll maybe talk more about it in a second, but yeah, they're all different dogs like different things. Um, certainly as a general, in some general guidelines, um, you know, if it, one thing that, that research does substantiate pretty clearly is, you know, for, for many fears that the origin is uh, fairly early in life, or perhaps better said, the prevention is fairly early in life. And so if you get um, uh, a dog, it's a puppy and, it, and it's, you know, younger than six months old, um it's valuable to spend that time between, you know, eight weeks and which is the sort of classical age when people sort of buy uh, puppies if they're going to, to purchase them um, to six or eight months, exposing exposing your dog, socializing your dog to a wide variety of environments, um, you know, and that that's things like city streets and car noises, truck noises, 
um, a variety of loud sounds, different people, different environments, um, because that that really does, uh, in many sense, many senses, sort of inoculate the dog from a lot of potential problems um, later on in life. Uh, it's uh, the best example of that is is noise phobias, sorts of fear of noises. Um, those, if, if, if a puppy has been exposed to a wide variety of sounds, um, the likelihood that they'll become fearful of them later in life is, is dramatically decreased. And, and that's sort of true of many, many sort of non-social fears. Uh, in other words, environmental features that could trigger a fearful response. The more you can, the more you can introduce a puppy to them and, and show them that they're just part of the normal environment, uh, the better. Uh, but at any age, um, uh, certainly keeping the dog uh, cognitively uh, occupied, doing training. Um, it's a uh, company that I currently work with, uh, Companion Labs, uh, based in San Francisco, is uh, has developed a, a great new new sort of device that uses uh, artificial intelligence. And, and one of the things you know, I can I if I didn't send you the, the case study that we just wrote up, I'll, I'll send it to you. But uh, um, in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, we described this case where a dog with separation anxiety, symptoms were greatly mitigated by um, using this device when the owner couldn't be home, accompanied with some other exercises that the owner was doing um, to keep the dog sort of cognitively occupied. In other words, the dog was being trained using artificial intelligence and positive reinforcement, uh, in a sort of automated way. And it, it kept the dog occupied enough, um, that it, the dog's focus, uh, you know, he fixated on training and learning, not, not the departure of his owner. Um, you know, that's great. But the point there, too, is that any any sort of thing, you know, that, that's sort of cognitively occupying the dog is also working to um, help suppress, you know, sort, certain emotional reactions like, for example, fear. Um, in general, uh, training, uh, you know, you training with your dog is a great thing because it, it both reinforces, if done correctly, it reinforces the bond and the communication the two of you had, and it also keeps your dog learning new things, engaged, um, and, and there's good evidence that, that uh, um, it, just like in humans, um, you know, that sort of mental activity slows cognitive decline and slows other signs of aging in, in dogs as well. Um, so that, that's something, you know, you know, good nutrition, plenty of exercise, um, and, and sort of work, working and playing with your dog. And by working, I mean training, working on, and it doesn't have to be formal obedience. It can be, it can be silly pet tricks, um, but mm -hmm. anything, anything to keep the, the brain occupied and that sort of social interaction going is, it is going to be uh, very protective against uh, all sorts of, of sort of mental health issues that can occur and do occur in, in dogs. Um, you know, I think it's it's oftentimes we forget that that you know, dogs are pack animals, and and they are, which is to say, they're very social animals, and so it's not typical and not not sort of evolutionary usual for dogs to be left on their own for the better part of a day. Um, you know, think about you know, go back fifty plus years. Dogs were allowed to sort of wander, you know, out of the yard and join up with other neighborhood dogs and play. And so they were either interacting with people or they were interacting with other dogs. They were not sort of isolated on their own. And, and that, that isolation has, has proven to be, a, a, you know, a, unfortunately, a fertile ground for um, behavioral issues cropping up, as well as, as, you know, the dog just finds it less satisfying. Right. Yeah, super helpful stuff. And hopefully the, the folks listening who have dogs can sort of take, put some of this in action. And I think the folks listening who don't have dogs, um, you know, I think the, the broader uh, point here is uh, there are mental health needs and a lot of non-human animals. Um, this doesn't just apply to dogs. This applies to a variety of 
livestock and farm animals and wildlife. And uh, it's really, it's hard to really understand how deep it goes in the animal kingdom, but certainly what we know is animals that have social constructs, um, uh, you know, do naturally are going to have, you know, similar forms of social anxiety animals that are, that are sentient and, you know, have more advanced cognitive ability, you know, that does come with, uh, other forms of anxiety and depression. Um, uh, and, uh, how far again, the, you know, mental health issues, um, permeate the animal kingdom. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know, we're not going to easily know the answer to that question, but it's certainly out there and it's, it's there for your, uh, with your dogs. Um, Paul, thanks so much. So Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you four quick rapid fire questions. Um, and just your first kind of, uh, uh, quick response to each of them. Uh, most of our topics are around, you know, kind of wildlife and conservation and, and climate. So this is kind of more broadly around, around those topics. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, so the first question is what is your favorite book on, anything animal wildlife conservation environment dogs as well um what's the sort of book that uh you you recommend anybody everybody read uh let's see there's an interesting uh, science fiction book uh i think it's called serious and i'm spacing on the author's name but it was a great uh sort of thought experiment about you know what would happen if dogs truly had human conscious consciousness and and uh yeah i'll i'll send you the i'll send you the author's name but it, but it's fascinating uh the book, other, the book. other than that uh i tend to i tend to unfortunately read mostly sort of journal articles <laughs> the book is called serious yeah uh, great we'll uh we'll we'll, f- we'll find that and, and link it into the podcast okay what is the one uh animal or nature or wildlife documentary or film that is not super well known. Um, that you feel is a must see. You know, a fascinating one is, and, and again, I, you know, I, I'm spacing out on the title, but there was an interesting um, uh, documentary on the experiments that a Russian geneticist named Dmitry Belayev did with silver foxes back in the 1950s, and he essentially domesticated them. Uh, along a pathway that that uh, that is sort of hypothesized to be the same as the way in which dogs um, you know less less in a less planned way uh, dogs were domesticated and looking at the at the evolution of those foxes over generations was, was pretty fascinating in terms of thinking about how how uh, domestic the process of domestication works great yeah that sounds super interesting uh, what's your favorite animal on earth Hmm. Well, I'd have to say, um, if we discount humans, I would have to say dogs, given I've spent my life working with them. Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, last one is, what is the one behavior change you think everybody should or can adopt uh, to support uh, this planet and this natural world? Is the one like, some kind of simple thing, relatively simple thing that people can actually incorporate into their lives? Um, I think I think overall, in terms of impact on the natural world, if everybody just used a little less plastic every day, um, the the impact on our ecosystems would be would be absolutely profound. True that. Um, well, thank you, Paul, so much. It's been great uh, chatting with you. And... Well, thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure.